So friends, today's text is going to be rather difficult, I think, for us to hear. I don't know if it'll shock us as much as just remind us that the Bible is a very complicated book. And it poses significant challenges for us as modern day readers. It's kind of the whole point of this series, Grappling with God, where we're working to kind of untangle difficult pieces of scripture and seek to find a way forward, faithfully reading text, while also recognizing that they pose challenges for us as a people of God. And today's challenge is really what do we do with the violence we see in Scripture? How do we make sense of it? How are we to interact with it? And maybe most importantly, how are we to see um, it as a worthy endeavor, right? It's easy for us to just kind of not read 1 Samuel. Um, And so how do we make sense of it? Because uh, it is relevant, whether we like it or not. Uh, There is a rise in religious violence, not only throughout the world, but also within our own country, uh, particularly in far-right, white nationalistic organizations. I think January 6th is a prime example of that. And I still have that image of that giant white cross in the foreground as the insurrection was happening in the background. And so for us to kind of kid ourselves like violence and nationalism and Christianity aren't intertwined does us a disservice and it stunts our witness, our evangelical witness in the world. We have to wrestle today then with violence and how we understand it. So as we prepare to do that difficult work of wrestling with the, the text, Rebecca's going to do, and, and the folk band's going to do what they did last week and lead us in kind of this space where we center ourselves together before we read the text. I invite you to, uh, I'll sing a phrase and I invite you to sing it back to me with the folk band, as Mitchell said, as we sort of enter into this difficult space. Come out, come out of your comfortable spaces. Come out, come out of your comfortable spaces. Come meet Jesus in the difficult places. Come meet Jesus in the difficult places. Come out, come out of your comfortable spaces. Come out, come out spaces come meet Jesus in the difficult places come meet Jesus in the difficult places oh come out come out of your well-to-do places come out come out of your well-to-do places come meet Jesus in the struggle in spaces Struggling spaces. Come out, come out of your comfortable spaces. Come out, come out of your comfortable spaces. Come meet Jesus in the difficult places. Come meet Jesus in the difficult places. In the difficult places, come meet Jesus in the difficult places. Amen. So, our reading is from 1 Samuel, 
chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It can also be translated as Lord of the armies. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's in our Bible. It's in 1 Samuel clear instructions, at least we think, (laughs) that the Lord has given to Samuel, who is to pass that along to Saul. This is the work before you. This is what the Lord requires. It's not a one-off, though, unfortunately. We see this theme a few times in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 17, when you draw near to a town to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. If it accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all the people in it shall serve you at forced labor. If it does not submit to you peacefully but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. You may, however, take as your booty the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the town, all its spoils. You may enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall treat all the towns that are very far from you, which are not towns of the nations here. But as for the towns of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them. Similar text in Joshua 8 and Judges 16, uh, and the theme in 1 Samuel is not unique, unfortunately. Um, I recently read an article about uh, religious violence, and it found that the Christian scriptures, both the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament are far more violent in terms of narrative and seen and action than the Quran, which shouldn't really shock us if we've actually read our Bible. It can be a very, very violent book. And we can try to escape this reality, but we will always be carrying around with us if we are good, faithful Christians carrying our Bible, we will always be carrying around texts that are very, very shocking and difficult, like the ones that I just read. Frankly, they're awful texts, and yet they will still be tucked under our arm wherever we take our Bible. So the question is, why does the Bible have such difficult, violent texts? Why does our Bible seem to reflect a nature of God that seems incompatible with Christian teaching? One night when I was in Lone Oak, town of 500, if you've been around, you've heard me talk about Lone Oak. It's town of 500. It's the place where I first came back to North Texas to be a pastor. It is also the place where you can find the best burger in the state at the grocery store. I was sitting around one night. I was a half-time appointed pastor, so I had a lot of time to sit around. I was probably playing FIFA on my PlayStation 3 or whatever. And I got a call that night from the mother of one of my friends from high school. 
And they had just lost their baby in the first few days of its life. And they wanted me to do a memorial service one evening with just the family in a living room at the grandmother's house. And so I went. Still not graduated from seminary, although graduating from seminary does not prepare you for that work. And um, I went, and I was unprepared for that, and honestly, I probably still am very unprepared for that reality. I don't remember what I said that evening, but I do remember that feeling, that feeling of despair, of horrendous pain. And I remember recalling that night with a friend of mine, and he asked me if I thought God loved us. And I said, yes. And then he said, well, why did you have to go bury a baby? And my response was, I don't know. I don't know. It was probably the most honest thing I said in that entire ordeal. And I'm employing that same response today in front of you all because you're going to ask me inherently, what do we do with this text or why is it in our Bible? And I'm going to tell you, honestly, I do not know why 1 Samuel is in our scriptures. I do not know why our Holy Bible contains such violence. Now, I can explain the meaning of the Hebrew, or at least a few of the Hebrew words, and I can explain to you the context in which the stories that we read about in the Old Testament employing such violence exist. I can explain that to you, but I honestly do not know why our Bible has passages that seem to endorse, encourage, or expect genocide, sexual violence, the taking of innocent life, the slaughtering of babies. I do not understand why those texts are truly in our Bible if our Bible is to serve as a way for us to get closer to God. I do not know, but I do know that we are finite beings. I'm reminded of that quite often, trying to grasp the infinite through texts that are thousands of years old. And we are fooling ourselves if we think there are easy answers, but we cannot absolve ourselves of the work. We wrestle with Scripture because we are charged with that task as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Last week, I don't think I said anything too shocking. Certainly the Scripture wasn't as shocking as today's. But I did say we do not take the Bible literally as United Methodists, but we do take it seriously. And the serious care that we have for these texts needs from us and demands from us a reading of them that acknowledges their existence. And it demands from us a willingness to stay engaged, even if the text makes us really uncomfortable. Now, the good news is when we look at 1 Samuel and we look at text in Deuteronomy and we look at Joshua or, or parts of Judges, right, we can begin to chisel away at them if we are intentional, if we actually study and continue to read our Bible. So in 1 Samuel 15, what a lot of folks do, what a lot of scholars do today is they try to understand the historic context in which 1 Samuel is written. 
They want to know the context because it helps put a larger kind of framework around it where we can maybe understand why these words were not only penned, but then canonized. And here's what you need to know, right? The, the relationship between Israel and the Malachites is well documented in Scripture. The Malachites were a nomadic people, but mainly occupied the southern region of the Israel territory, the Sinai region. In Exodus, we are told that as the Israelites were attacked by the Amalekites, uh, they were in the midst of the wilderness and they had not yet formed a nation. So while the Hebrew people had kind of made their way from Egypt and were in the wilderness, the Amalekites attacked them, the Hebrew people were victorious. And then they set up the nation state of Israel, right? And after this Israelite victory, God promises them that he will blot out, God will blot out the remembrance of the Amalekites. And so some 400 years later, Samuel lets Saul know that the time has come. Uh, and so Saul is the first anointed king of Israel, a reality that uh, God uh, was desperate not to see, honestly, if we know our Bible. God and the people of Israel had some tension around who would lead them. Would it be God or judges or prophets or would it be a king? Ultimately, Israel gets a king. And so Samuel anoints Saul and gives him these orders that we read about. These kind of divine orders to carry out. And he does it for the most part, if we read the text. Saul does it for the most part, except he fails to kill all the livestock, holding the best back for himself. And ultimately, this is Saul's downfall. And he is replaced as a king by David. So as we dig into the text, we realize that the main issue in 1 Samuel, especially in these chapters, is not genocide, but it is obedience. Much like how Sodom and Gomorrah is not about homosexuality, it's about hospitality. And yet, genocide as a pedagogical tool doesn't solve the reality for us that this text is on the pages of our sacred book. Regardless of the main point... Genocide clearly is an issue. And we can begin to work with the text and try to solve for its uncomfortable reality by acknowledging that it speaks of a specific history written long after the events took place and serves as a way to make sense of the Israelites' present reality. It is not uncommon to look at Scripture as a multifaceted narrative that intertwines the holy story of God in the flawed or bloated memories of the ones writing the text. We can, as thinking people who use scripture, tradition, reason, and experience to make sense of the Bible, we can understand that the Bible is complicated, both in how it portrays God's desire for the world and how humans have really messed that up. The whole don't take the Bible literally then has its advantages <laughs> because we enter into this kind of messy, complicated relationship between God's desire for the world and <laughs> how humans often interpret that. So 
this mandate that we see in Samuel could simply be poorly interpreted. It could be a poorly interpretation of God's desire. And I think that that's a really fair question for us to ask of 1 Samuel. And another fair way to handle the text is to put it in its scriptural context, not just its historical context, but understand what scripture is really saying. And if we do so, we can come to this space where we see this, this reality play out, where God is simply disappointed that the Israelites have gone the way of kings and kingdoms. And we see that best in Samuel 8. In chapter 8, this is what the text says, referring to text. Uh, so Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, the NRSV says, these will be the ways of the king. The NIV says, this is what the king will do. But neither really get to the heart of the Hebrew. The Hebrew is translated, this will be the king's mishpat. Mishpat being that Hebrew word for the king's notion of justice. Okay, here's how kings understand justice. The king who will reign over you, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of 50 and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his people. He will take one-tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers. And he will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There is clear... <laughs> It is rather clear in 1 Samuel that there is great tension between how God desires the Israelites to behave and how their own need for human mishpat or human justice diverges greatly. So what if violence in Scripture is simply the ebb and flowing of this reality, this awful push and pull of humans' relationship with God? That may help us make a little sense of the text. But the truth is, I still don't really know. I do know one thing, though. We cannot do what Christians often do, especially mainline Christians, such as ourselves. We tend to do this thing, um, and it often looks like quickly moving to the place where we highlight the differences between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We talk about how superior the New Testament is to the Old Testament. Jesus first and everything else second. 
Now, I'm not sitting here arguing that there is not a uniqueness to the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus' salvific work amongst us as a body. But I am saying if we move too quickly to a place where we put the New Testament on a pedestal so that we do not have to deal with the Old Testament, we will eliminate three-quarters of the Bible. And if we eliminate three-quarters of the Bible, right, we are disowning the very Bible Jesus used. And when we do this, when we elevate the New Testament above the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, it increases shameful division between Jews and Christians. And we can look to history to see how that has played out. And we can look to the current news to see how that is currently playing out. And it discounts the Old Testament as a source of true Christian nonviolence because the Old Testament says every bit as much as the New Testament about loving our enemies. One of the Bible's oldest laws says that if your enemy's ox should wander into your field, you should return it. Leviticus talks about loving your neighbor, especially the one that has wronged you. Proverbs tells people to feed and give water to their enemies. The Old Testament is a source of dreaming, dreaming of a world free of violence, a world where weapons become gardening tools. The truth is, Jesus didn't invent nonviolence as an act of faith, but he did perfect it. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he did come to fulfill it. God's vision for our world is peace. It is not genocide, period. God stands with the powerless, the victim, the weak. God detests violence. And I believe that not in spite of the Old Testament, but because of it. Because if there was one word to describe God's desire for creation, why God created the world, it would be shalom, an embodiment of everyday the salvific experience of peace. Isaiah talks about the wolf and the lamb, the lions and the bears, the leopards and the goats, all relaxing together, eating their meal. God transformed the most violent beast into friends of the young. We also see shalom as a standard even in the midst of conflict. A consistent theme in the Old Testament is that people should trust in God, not in weapons. God forbids the Israelites from having horses. We see that in Deuteronomy 17. Not because God is against horses, but because horses are instruments of war. Psalm 33 says the horse for victory, no way. Even with all its power, it cannot rescue. wonder if we were to rewrite that psalm today, what it would sound like. Drones for victory? No way. Even with all its power, it cannot rescue. In Psalm 20, we hear the psalmist say, Some have swords. And some use horses, 
But we, as a people of God, what will we do? We will call on the name of the Lord. There is plenty of textual evidence in the Old Testament to see that God deeply desires a different way, a third way, an opportunity to bring in peace in everyday situations, to live in the midst of shalom. So could scripture in all its competing understandings of God be a manifestation of God's desire for our world struggling with our own sinfulness? I think so. I think that that is a faithful way to read the text. I do think so. But honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Matthew Schlimm's an Old Testament professor, and he puts it this way. There are many things about the Bible we cannot explain. True. Some texts are best labeled as hazardous material. True. And we have to handle them with the utmost care. But here's what you do with hazardous material, at least I think, I hope we're all doing this. We can either throw them out, nor insist they are harmless. Instead, we should recognize the danger in trying to incorporate them into our daily lives. I like that a lot. We can't take Samuel 15 and simply throw it away. We also can't look at 1 Samuel 15 and think of it as harmless. We have to be very, very careful with texts that display a God who seemingly wants violence. What I do know, what I've become sure of, is that I remain unsure about why this text is in the Bible, what's its ultimate purpose. I do know that I am becoming more and more comfortable with saying I do not know, and that's mainly because I have a three-year-old who is in love with really obscure saltwater fish and very odd, very specific construction vehicles. Uh, the amount of questions I get from cash around those two things, I've become very comfortable with saying I have no idea, right? And someday I will hand him a Bible like I've, some of you have handed your child a Bible when he's in third grade. When we hand our kids these Bibles, we say, hey, we really want you to read this thing, right? And hey, parents, we really want to make sure that your kids read the Bible. And I will try to do my best to make sure that he reads his Bible. And if he's really reading his Bible, one day he's going to come and ask me, what's up with 1 Samuel 15? What do we do do with this text, Dad? And I hope I have the courage to look at my son and say, I don't know. But as he asks that question, and I hope that he does, I also hope he finds texts like Psalm 9. The needy will not always be neglected. The hope of the poor will not be crushed forever. Because if my Bible can teach my child that God has compassion for the poor neighbors and kids in his class, I want that book in his hands, even if some parts are inexplicable. Because... I can't wait to see how God's shalom 
revealed throughout Scripture, captivates his imagination. And I trust and pray that it will captivate ours as well. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, <laughs> you don't promise us that this faith thing is easy, that reading scripture is easy. You don't promise us that following Jesus is easy, but you do promise us that you will walk alongside us. So give us the courage and the boldness necessary to be peacemakers day in and day out. For surely there are ways for us to sow seeds of peace wherever we are with whoever we're hanging out with. Help us see your shalom, your deep ongoing peace in the world and in creation as not only a goal we strive for, but a reality right here and right now because we are a people of Easter. And may we continue to be a church that seeks to provide an alternative witness to anything that brings about death in our community. And bless us as we do this hard work. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.